choice is brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's noon on the first Monday of the month, so it's book choice on Fine Music Radio, various frequencies, and of course now on DSTV Channel 838. And it's a very warm welcome from me, Gory Bowes-Taylor. Hello, Gory. I'm Machaba Chaba. We'll be with you now from, from now till one o'clock. That's a good length of time. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, brings you a bag full of the best in fiction and non-fiction. We chat to the great, the maestro, Angelo Gabato, about his knees and his passion for opera, the book that is one of today's giveaways. Cindy Moritz spies a grand thriller in Daniel Silver's The Other Woman. More spine thrillers from Mike Fitzjames, including the new Tony Park, which is also one of today's giveaways. The 10th of this month, the 10th of October, is World Mental Health Day. The enumerations is a novel about the effect of a mental condition on a family. Vanessa Levenstein spoke to the author Moira Fisher. John Hanks hopes that adults too will read Kids' Snakes of Southern Africa by Johann Murray and thus keep snakes alive. At Leslie Beek, Leslie Beek talks to talks sorry, talks teenage fantasy, in in other words, other worlds, and two good books for the younger ones. Peter Soul gives us the upbeat on the first Prime Minister of the Union of South Africa, Louis Boerta by Richard Stein. And Philip Todres takes on a remarkable tome, belonging. The Story of the Jews, 1492-1900, to by Simon Sharma. Do stay with us for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 250-rand book vouchers from Wordsworth Books, or Angela Gabato's Passion for Opera, or Tony Park's Captivating Captive. Andrew Marshbanks, a splendid bag full there. Hello. Thank you, Gory. Well... Got some lovely books here today, and I see, now that I look at them, that they are all South African, which is unusual. It's normally a a mix-up of imported and local stuff. But let us have a look. The first one is by Stephen Hofstadter. It's called License to Loot, How the Plunder of ESCOM and Other Parastatals Almost Sank South Africa. Of course, the odd thing about this book, as I'm sure you may have seen the protest is that Stefan Hofstetter was the person on the Sunday Times reporter who who reported about SARS rogue unit, which was totally false reporting and was sort of put into the Sunday Times to undermine the integrity of SARS. So Stefan Hofstetter comes with a bit of baggage. I have no doubt that the book is accurate, though. But it's something you have to bear in mind when you look at the read this book, which actually reads very well. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And lots of detail, lots of joining the dots, which is what we all need, and to try and follow the terms of inquiry of the various things that are happening at the moment in the parastatal. 
Right, so that is Stefan Hofstadter, License to Loot, How the Plunder of ESCOM and Other Parastatals Almost Sank South Africa. That's 260 rand. Well, something very different. I think you probably all know Rebecca Davis. She writes for the Daily Maverick, and she's on with John Matham on Cape Talk, I think, once a week. Now, she's just given up alcohol, and when she gave up alcohol, she was searching for something to take over the void that this left, and she decided to look for self-help and track down all the various things that we in Cape Town do to discover ourselves, reform ourselves, make ourselves better. And so she went out and she decided to try everything, to throw herself into the the theme of the moment, and this is what she did. And it's quite fascinating, quite interesting the way she's done it, and funny at the same time, because as you know, she is a humorous author, very bright, very witty. It's self, Rebecca Davis, self-helpless, a cynic search for sanity, and it is 285 rand. Then the next one is a really fascinating book about biographies of various top South Africans. It's called Illuminating Lives, Biographies of Fascinating People from South African History. It reminds me of, do you remember Aubrey's Brief Lives, where someone wrote down, Aubrey wrote down, just small biographies of the major people of the time, I think in the UK it was. Well, this is South African equivalent very well written, very fascinating. Vivian Bickwood-Smith did it, and Bill Nassen. They're both very well-known historical writers. It reads extremely easily, as you would expect from these two, and filled with fascinating and diverting facts. Just 280 rand, that's Illuminating Lives, Biographies of Fascinating People from South African History. Now I've got two cookbooks. Now these are the latest trend in cookbooks. You go from Ottolenghi, which has a million ingredients that you have to go out and you have to buy and you have to research and, and every recipe takes a day to do. That's the Ottolenghi style. Although he has simplified it in his new book, Ottolenghi Simple. But these are a totally different style. These are getting things together quite quickly, crushing them up and liquidizing them and doing whatever you are, and then you come out with an absolutely beautiful meal. The first one is Suzelle, Suzelle DIY recipes. And I'm just going to talk about one recipe that's in here. Marianne's Marmite Spaghetti. Now, before you fall and faint, this actually, it looks as if it might be quite good. This one may seem a little crazy, guys, but believe you me, you must try it. It's really a tasty treat, and it's so, so easy. The buttery Marmite sauce coats the spaghetti perfectly, and you end up with this deliciously salty, melt-in-your-mouth bowl of happiness. Well, that sounds great. As you can see, it's all quick, simple, easy recipes. One recipe per page, easy peasy pickles, gherkins, etc., etc. Lovely. And a similar one, but slightly more complicated, is foodies. You probably know the Facebook site of foodies, where they, they get various things. They show you exactly how it's done in the bowl, how you do things, how you mix things up, and how you do it. And there's one recipe here that I thought was quite fascinating. Let me just get to it. It's a rice fritter stack where you cook the rice, you add things to it, you crush it all, you liquidize it all, 
and then you fry it into little patties, little pancakes, and it looks absolutely amazing. I mean, these people have got food into a different level of ease, convenience, and downright decadence, I would say. This is not healthy eating, but this is delicious stuff that you can put in front of your guests and food. And I think that it's a new trend in food. We used to have, remember, all those puddings that were made with Easy Whip and evaporated milk. Now this is a similar in savory stuff. Highly recommended. Try it. Have a look and try it. Foodies of South Africa is 340 Rand, and Suzelle DIY is 280 Rand. That's all for now. Cheers. Bye. Angela Gabato, the great Angela Gabato. We're hoping for, well, a little hum from you some say. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> is that sufficient? <laughs> no. Your marvellous memoir, A Passion for Opera, has just been published. You and Rodney Trudgeon talked about your memoir on His Marvellous People of Note, now podcast on FMR's website. Then there were the booked-out concerts where Pretty Yendi rescheduled her hectic schedule as her tribute to your birthday. That concert also raised funds for the Gabato bursary. Very interesting. You're so well awarded nationally and internationally that I wish we had time to tell all. Pretty Yendi isn't your only superb success story, is she? But before we get there, I get to ask you very personal question. How are your knees? My knees. <laughs> <laughs> My knees would be much better if I could lose some weight. But unfortunately, I'm a great gourmand. I enjoy good food. And above all, I enjoy cooking good food. So um, my knees have to put up with my standing around in the kitchen and uh, then with the food that goes down on them. So... Yes, I get by. I get by. But they could well be better. But a good move from Upper Orange Street to Lochinvar. Not so many steps in Lochinvar? Not so many steps, number one, and not such a big house. The Upper Orange Street home was built when my parents were alive, when I was chief executive of Cape Town Opera, head of the opera school, lots of parties, lots of entertainment. All that is now gone. So a lovely three-bedroom apartment is already bigger than I need. <laughs> and your book doesn't just you know, trace your well-tracked operatic life. It's also an invaluable operatic history in both Italy and South Africa. In South Africa, and in your early days, black people had to get a permit to study at your UCT opera school. Well, of course, uh, those were not very happy days. The, The politics played a great part in everybody's lives, as politics always does, of course. Nothing much has changed there. But if black students wanted to register at UCT despite all UCT's complaints and uh, notices on its curriculum one had to get a permit which was really the equivalent of a pass for somebody to be permitted to stay in Cape Town and study at UCT. Of course a great insult to personal dignity and 
a lot of people decided that they were not going to take this affront and decided not to study. But there were a few, and perhaps these few are not as well recognized and known as they might have been, who took it upon themselves to uh, build their passion for music and for opera in particular and actually go through this whole difficult process to register at UCT. And Lungila Jacobs was one of them, and he is still around and doing great things for opera. So a tip of the hat to Lungile for being one of the first students to say, I wish to sing opera. I was going to say also, Pretty Yend is one of your best-known and your best-known students, best-known successes, and you're both very fond of each other. But who else was there, and who else is there now? Oh, there have been yes, such a large number. It would be almost unkind to, to mention a few and leave so many of them out. Probably the, the best-known success stories these days is Musan Nkwana. He's been in Cape Town recently, and he's also published a book explaining the difficulties he had in starting off an operatic career and he is having great success in America and Europe. Uh, we've got Levi Segapane who's won several competitions, is now one of the leading coloratura tenors that is out in the world Siabulele Ntlale wonderful baritone working and uh, having great fun in Germany. Pumeza Machikiza, of course, another great soprano who is doing so well, etc., etc., etc. Far too many for me to mention. And those I've left out, please forgive me. I love you all. <laughs> That's a lovely thing to say. And, um, Angel, on the front cover of your book, A Passion for Opera, you're a young lad in, <laughs> in short pants and short trousers. You're clasping your left hand over your right hand. On the inside back jacket, now you're a young 75-year-old, mm. you're holding your... It's the other way around. Was that deliberate? Was that... Well, probably not. It's an operatic stance. It's a, well, you know, what the designer tried to do. He said, you know, you on the front cover you're going to look like that. We want you to take the same stance at the back. And I said, well, I really don't remember which finger I put where and where my feet were. <laughs> but they said, okay, well, let's try. So I did. And if it went into the wrong hole, as it were, some deep significance can be read into <laughs> it, I'm sure. <laughs> We were talking to the great Angelo Gabato about his really marvellous historical, obviously, memoir. It's called A Passion for Opera, which, of course, he has, as we have for him. Sidney Morris, the new Daniel Silva. Daniel Silva's spy novels have enlisted a sort of cult following, with fans waiting all year for a new novel to be published and then tearing through it at breakneck speed, finishing breathless and desperate for the next... Such is the case with The Other Woman, Silver's 18th spy thriller featuring the beloved and legendary Gabriel Alon, an acclaimed art restorer who also serves as the chief of Israel's secret intelligence service. The novel opens aptly in Vienna, a deliberate tool to set a suspenseful atmosphere. This city, which was well known as a city of spies during the Cold War, bears great significance in Gabriel's life. The other woman goes back in time in its storytelling and the opening setting provides a crucial link between the old, both factually and fictitiously, and the new world, 
with specific reference to Russia. In this Cold War setting, Gabriel Alon and his team wait for a Russian defector to appear. Needless to say, things don't go according to plan and the subsequent investigation finds that Russia has inserted a mole into the upper ranks of Western intelligence. Gabriel's quest to find the mole takes him back in time and intriguingly links to the true case of the notorious British agent Mr Kim Philby. More about that later. From Vienna, the reader is whizzed through other locales and spy agencies in Europe, the UK, Russia, the USA and the Middle East at a rate of knots, creating just the right dose of pace and suspense for the story to propel itself towards a partially satisfying ending. Partially satisfying because... Suffice to say that aspects of The Other Woman are enough of a mirror for the real-world events right now to make it difficult to wrap up neatly with a bow. Plus, complete closure would mean no more Gabriel Alon novels, and we can't have that. In his author's note, Silver stresses that his novel is a work of entertainment, but does allude to certain aspects of historical fact that have been included in the story. Most notable is the background presence of Mr Kim Philby, a high-ranking member of British intelligence who worked as a double agent before defecting to the Soviet Union in 1963 and was part of the Cambridge Five, or Magnificent Five as the KGB referred to them. These five were recruited just 16 years after the birth of the Soviet Union, during a time of great paranoia in Moscow. They were part of a political war against the West, which included disinformation campaigns in the Western media, as well as political violence and assassinations. Silver writes, there are striking parallels between then and now. He drew on a number of spy autobiographies in his research for this book and in sketching Philby stayed mostly true to his story save for the introduction of key fictional characters in the telling. And that's how we come to ask who is the other woman and what is her significance in this convoluted world of subterfuge. The joy lies in finding out. It's hard to separate author Daniel Silver from the fictional protagonist, Gabriel Alon, whose voice and character has evolved to become ever more authentic over the years. Silver, in fact, started his career in journalism, which took him to the UPI's foreign desk in Washington, then Cairo and the Persian Gulf as Middle East correspondent. The character, Gabriel Alon, was supposed to appear in only one book, and Silver says he had to be convinced to write more about him. He says... Gabriel and I have gone on this journey together. You don't have to read any of the previous novels to appreciate this one, but be warned, you may be tempted to go back and catch up on them all. Vanessa Levenstein, the 10th of October is World Mental Health Day. You spoke to Maura Fisher, author of The Enumerations. Depending on whether you're a Tolkien fan or a die-hard Tolkien scholar will influence your expectations of The Fall of Gondolin by J.R.R. Tolkien, edited by his son Christopher Tolkien, with illustrations by Alan Lee. I fall into the former category and expected a relatively easy read along the lines of The Hobbit. That it is not. You have to rise up and put in the work to enjoy The Fall of Gondolin, but it's worth it.
The themes of good versus evil, greed and power that we see in The Lord of the Rings are etched into Gondolin's pages. Set in the First Age, The Fall of Gondolin is the third of the last tales, published after Tolkien's death. The book is not a whole story, rather sketches and scraps that Tolkien wrote over time. It's believed he first started writing the tales in the trenches during World War I, and then later drafts were written, after he'd completed The Lord of the Rings. Christopher, who's now 93, has expertly woven these drafts together. The story is about the hidden elfish city of Gondolin. In the tale there are two great powers, Morgoth, who is evil, and Alma, the Lord of Waters, who is good. The elf Turgon follows his father to Middle-earth to take revenge on the evil Morgoth. Tuar, who marries Turgon's daughter Idril, has a dream, in which Elma comes and tells him about the hidden city of Gondolin. Gondolin means hidden rock. For centuries there would be peace in Gondolin, until the king's nephew Miglin betrayed their secret to Morgoth. The siege of Gondolin has dragons, orcs, elves and men fighting for the city. Tuar, his wife and their son Arendelle survive, as does Tolgan's sword, which is to be found in the Third Era by Gandalf. Now, apart from the disjointed text, another challenge for the reader is Tolkien's language. It sounded like Middle English, and I had panicky flashbacks of trying to decipher Chaucer. However, there is a glossary at the end of the book, and it may also motivate you, like it did me, to find out more about Tolkien and how his love of the Finnish language and mythology influenced his creation of Elvish. The illustrations by Alan Lee, who has worked on the new Tolkien books, and Peter Jackson's film adaptions are exquisite. Interestingly enough, it was Christopher Tolkien who drew the original maps for Lord of the Rings. With this trilogy finally concluded, Christopher wrote that The Fall of Gondolin is the last of his father's writings to be published in this form, but even so, the doors to Middle-earth remain open. John Hanks, Snakes Alive I wonder how many people listening to this programme suffer from ophidiophobia. It's not a word you hear used very often, but unfortunately it is a widespread phobia and refers to an abnormal fear of snakes, an obsession that all too often results in an immediate call for any snake seen near a house or garden to be killed. This is nothing new. Snakes have been characterized for their cunning cynicism, dating back as far as biblical times, when the snake persuaded Eve to eat the forbidden fruit of Eden's garden. Even the phrase snake in the grass expresses a hidden threat, recognized by Shakespeare, who referred to this treacherous reptile in Macbeth to convey the same evil. Snakes, of course, are not inherently evil and treacherous animals. And I was delighted to see that Straight Nature has published a superbly illustrated production on the snakes of southern Africa written by Johann Murray, and which successfully embraces his passion and enthusiasm for an intriguing group of animals that have been misunderstood and vilified for far too long. This is not a comprehensive field guide, but an introduction to 36 of the 173 species found in southern Africa. And it's an excellent and concise overview on where snakes are found, why they have scales, why and how they shed their skins, why they have forked tongues, how they reproduce, how they feed and move, to mention just some of the elements of their fascinating life history and anatomy. Johann Murray advises hospitals and clinics throughout Africa on snake bikes. And I'm sure those who do not like snakes will immediately turn to the section on snake bites the type of venom 
and the identification of the deadliest snakes in our region. More importantly, he gives sound and simple advice on how to avoid snake bites, noting that in the majority of cases, snakes will move away from you if you keep a safe distance from them of at least five meters or more. If you run away from a snake, it will never catch you, as the fastest any snake can move is 13 kilometers an hour. Another potential danger is linked to the interesting aspect of snake behavior. A technique of playing dead is used by some species, turning upside down with an open mouth and tongue hanging out until the predator moves away, when the snake will quickly right itself and escape. So be very wary, writes Johann Murray, and never touch a seemingly dead snake. The 36 species the book describes in detail include such harmless species as mole snakes and house snakes, in addition to the very dangerous species with clear photographs to aid identification and a summary of the snake's size, distribution and habitat, food and breeding behaviour. The full title of the book is Kids, Snakes of Southern Africa, which I think is a pity as adults could be put off from even looking at it. I will certainly be recommending the book for school libraries, but with a changed title such as Introduction to the Snakes of Southern Africa, I think more adults would read it and hopefully come to appreciate the extraordinary and fascinating diversity of these reptiles. I suppose we all have our phobias, and a fear of snakes is understandable. But with 16th of July 2018 being celebrated as World Snake Day, we are at last starting to give animals the attention and appreciation they deserve. And Johann's book will undoubtedly help. Perhaps we should ask Nicole Kidman to become our snake ambassador. Why do I say that? Well, she said recently, and I quote, You know, it's so bizarre. I'm not scared of snakes or spiders, but I'm scared of butterflies. There's something airy about them, something weird. End quote. Phobias are a very common type of anxiety disorder, but a fear of butterflies is surely most unusual. Any suggestion for a new noun for this phobia? The title of the book is Kids, Snakes of Southern Africa, as written by Johann Murray. It was published in 2018 by Penguin Random House and Strake Nature in Cape Town and it sells for 130 rand. Leslie Beek, a teenage book about fantasy and two good books for younger readers. Did you ever dream about another world when you were a child? One up an apple tree was a book, perhaps, or in a submarine investigating wrecks and caves. I did. The first book I wrote, in grade seven, featured a boy climbing a tree when a rainbow fell on his head with improbable results and great recourse to Roger's thesaurus for other words to describe yellow. It's become a lot more difficult since those early days of enchantment. Now you need to factor in dark curses, mirror worlds, vendettas, horrible scars, early and disremembered tragedies, and nightmares with dreadful psychotic overtones. Not to mention a bit of healthy S&M, hellhounds, and some lurid violence. There is a category of teenage reading best described as Fifty Shades of Awful, usually in a series of at least four books. But there are those that shine through. Nevermore, The Trials of Morrigan Crow by Jessica Townsend is one. Guess what? It's going to be a series. I enjoyed it a lot, and it has had to be ripped from the clutches of my teenage test reader. 
I enjoyed it most of all because I liked the protagonist. I can take a difficult character who improves throughout a story, but not unrelenting nastiness. Morrigan Crow is always likable, even if she does have to live under a curse, mostly her family, I would say. But magic begins to happen. The kind of magic that involves travelling in an arachnopod and also on an umbrella... Well, an umbrella rail, I think. Hey, it's magic. It's fun. There are, there have to be, darker moments. The hunt of smoke and shadow, for example. Morrigan felt her stomach drop. The glowing red lights weren't lights at all. They were the eyes of men, the eyes of horses, and the eyes of hounds. They were darkness, a pure absence of light, and they moved with purpose. They were hunting. Don't be scared. Luckily, Jupiter North, you will also love Jupiter North by the end of this book, is on hand swiftly whisk Morgan to a place of safety and magic. This is a lovely book, and the trick of it is it's good writing. Invent as much as you please of fantasies and horrors. It's the writing that counts, and this is excellent. Perfect for reading on your bed, under a blanket, with sun shining on you, for younger teens between 10 and 12. Very different is the recreated world in A Jigsaw of Fire and Stars by Yaba Bedu, a British Ghanaian filmmaker and author. This talented writer has looked back into dreams and memories, as well as casting a spotlight on a dysfunctional modern world where ships full of asylum seekers can be torpedoed and child trafficking can happen. The story is experienced through the eyes of Sante, a child of Africa, floated to safety on a deserted beach with her people's treasure and watched over by her eagle guardian, Pris. I read this book twice, my ultimate compliment. It has an eerie, magical realism full of flashbacks and dreams, but the thread of the story holds firm, and the circus background and the realities of the people the circus gives sanctuary to make the story sing. Again, I like the protagonists. I like their honesty and the way they protect and defend and sometimes defy and always love each other. And also, again, the writing outshines the complexities of the plot. In teenage reading, as in all reading, it is the excellence that should count. I reviewed Nevermore, The Trials of Morrigan Crow by Jessica Townsend, published by Orion, an imprint of Hachette in 2017, and A Jigsaw of Fire and Stars by Yaba Bedu, published by Zephyr, an imprint of Head of Youth, also in 2017. Peter Soule, a much-admired Prime Minister, Louis Boerter. Richard Stein's appetite for South African biographies was clearly not satisfied with the two books he authored on Smuts. He's now produced a well-researched, comprehensive volume on Louis Boerta, the first Prime Minister of the Union of South Africa, an institution he and Jan Smuts did much to create following the devastation of the Anglo-Boer War. I savoured Louis Boerta, a man of apart, published by Jonathan Ball, as I knew little of his background and history. That has been satisfied by this informative volume of a man who was big-hearted and generous, much loved by all who worked with him, and much admired by world leaders such as Woodrow Wilson and Winston Churchill, 
who described him as one of the truly great men of the world. Boerter, who was born on the 27th of September 1862 near Greytown, Natal, and his wife Annie and their many children lived on their farm Waterfall, east of Freyheit. When the Anglo-Boer War broke out, Boerter joined up with the Transvaal Boers, rising very soon after that to the position of Commandant General. Stein tells us the chapters on the war are an account of Boerter's role in the Anglo-Boer War and not a detailed record of the war itself. During the war, Boerter was a brilliant young Boer general who through his battlefield strategy won significant victories over the British in the early stages of the war. When the weight of British arms overwhelmed the Boers, Boerter, along with Smuts, did much to encourage peace between English and Afrikaner and led the country to Union in 1910. The Anglo-Boer War was one of the last gentlemen's war. The Boers would not fight on the Sabbath and negotiated with the British for a truce on the Lord's Day with hostilities resuming on the Monday. A further example of the nature of the war was when British commander Kitchener decided to discuss with Boerter a possible peace. An all-day meeting was held at Middleburg, east of Pretoria, where Kitchener sounded Boerter out. Boerter resisted, making it clear the Boers would only stop the war if they could have their independent republics reinstated. This Kitchener could not do. The two men got on well together, and after their talks were ended, the British commander invited Boerter to a game of bridge. Boerter said he could only play whist. Kitchener replied he would teach him, and the two played for some hours, with Boerter losing 15 pounds sterling, which he repaid some years later. The Boers had no playing cards. Boerter asked Kitchener to send him some, and in due course received a gift of 50 packs. Boerter became an avid bridge player. After the war, and with talks heading for the convention which was to decide on the Union of South Africa, Boerter played a prominent role at the convention, and as he felt uncomfortable speaking in English, always spoke in Afrikaans, which had evolved from Cape Dutch, with his faithful secretary, Dr. Bock, doing the translation. This led to an amusing incident in London, when the organisers of a dinner where Boerter was the guest of honour were on high alert for physical attacks on their person by militant suffragettes. Boerter made a few remarks in Afrikaans when Dr. Bock popped up behind him to translate. Unaware of who Bock was, the Toastmaster, assuming him to be a supporter of the suffragettes, dragged him physically from the main table. There was much excitement and confusion before the unfortunate Bock was able to continue with the English version of Boerter's speech. At the outbreak of the First War, Britain asked if South Africa would be prepared to invade German Southwest Africa to disable a network of radio transmitters being used to communicate with German naval ships at sea off the African coast. This was a divisive issue, as the majority of Afrikaners were more sympathetic to the Germans than they were to the British. This led to the rebellion of 1914. Boerter's powers of persuasion were such that he managed to placate many of the hotheads. Lieutenant Commander Whittle of the Royal Navy wrote, after meeting Boerter for the first time, No one can meet and talk to Boerter for five minutes without coming under the spell of his magnetic personality. He is indeed a leader of men. Stein also deals with the Treaty of Versailles and the important role played by Boerter. 
Boerter died at 56, far too young for South Africa to lose him. And, Mike Fitzjames, three spine tinglers, one of them by Tony Park, which is one of today's giveaways. Good afternoon, Gorry. I have three standout thrillers this month. The only problem for the listeners is to decide your best choice. Two are non-stop action, and the third is a complex thriller, which advances at a slower pace towards its gripping final destination. The first is The Helicopter Heist by Jonas Bonnier. It's based on an incredible real-life heist. Four men gather in Stockholm. Each has existed on the fringes of society, and each has a past that can't be forgotten. Now someone comes up with an audacious plan to steal millions from the largest cash facility in Sweden. Of course, at first, the scheme seems foolproof. Every contingency covered, every detail planned perfectly, but is everybody committed as they say they are? Can they ever really pull off such an extraordinary plan? This story will not allow you to rest easy. I read it in one session with food breaks and suitable drinks to hand. My second choice is Inhuman Resources by Pierre Lemaitre, a leading French writer of crime fiction. Alan Delabby is a former HR executive Depressed by four years of unemployment, he's reached the bottom of his life and marriage. When a major company offers him an interview, he's ready to do anything. Borrow money, assault his son-in-law, lie to his wife and daughters, and even agree to participate in a recruitment test where a role-playing game that involves hostage-taking is the centre. When he eventually realises that the dice were loaded against him from the very beginning, his fury is limitless and his desire for revenge relentless. Now what started as a simple game quickly becomes a bloodbath. This is a very believable and human story and a great read. My final choice is Captive by Tony Park. An eager and rather naive Australian lawyer, Kerry Maxwell, arrives in South Africa to volunteer at a wildlife orphanage run by notorious vet Graham Baird. Graham is jaded and reckless, the opposite of Kerry, who is law-abiding and optimistic. When Kerry arrives at the animal sanctuary, she is informed that Graham is now in prison in Mozambique, following a shootout with elephant poachers. In the shootout, he killed the brother of corrupt politician and poaching kingpin, Fidel Costa. Kerry's sense of justice takes her to Massinger to assist Graham with his case.
or this was a journey into a dangerous world. She's kidnapped, chased, attacked, and betrayed. And now she learns the bitter truth about the deadly nature of the war on poaching. It becomes quite clear that the motivations of charities, wealthy donors, and private zoos are not at all as they appear. Graham can possibly Carrie's perilous situation, but will it be in time to stop Costa's quest for revenge? What a non-stop action thriller. That's it for this month. My selections were The Helicopter Heist by Jonas Bonnier, Inhuman Resources by Pierre Lemaitre, and Captive by Tony Park. Whatever you choose, I know you'll enjoy it very much. Belonging, the story of the Jews 1492 to 1900, is by Simon Shamer. It's published by Berkeley Head and distributed locally by Penguin Random House South Africa. This is quite a tome, and yes, it's an amazing story about arrivals, departures, mostly anxious arrivals, as it says, and enforced departures, and the search for a home, which is very resonant to where we are today with migrant populations moving and how do we fit in and how do we belong. So it's a book that is historic but also relevant. And what I'd like to feature most about my review of the book is that I always find capturing the story is the essence in history and this is a book that is not so much as about dates as about stories and that's what impresses me enormously and as it points out it's not just the stories of rabbis philosophers and about religion they're all kinds of characters and Seamus Sound really finds their voices and their stories reading belonging is almost like reading a novel. The stories are fascinating, the people are fascinating, and really is a true cultural history in that respect. I was amazed at how he gets into these people's heads and how he is able to tease out the story which really takes you along this historic passage. There are details that fascinate and intrigue. And one of the things that also impresses me is the number of women that feature in the story and the movers and shakers at different times and different periods. There is this passionate telling. It's, it's a chronicle of epic events that lead to the telling of a major shift in history and how people try to belong, people try to be part of and not apart from and how sometimes it worked, how sometimes it didn't, and the political influences that changed and affected the course of history in different places at different times. Now, Shamer, Simon Shamer, is no stranger to history. In fact, has done several. He is a university professor of art history and history at Columbia University and has published several award-winning books. He's also very well known for features on BBC TV and in fact someone who likes reading as opposed to the television I'm forced into going through his series called The Story of the Jews Finding the Words 1000 BCE to 1492 in fact what happens before I read the book and I'd be intrigued to see how he teases out those stories and how he finds the voices to do it and I believe it is really a very powerful and a very moving series so I'm still 
it's not a book that you just read. It's a book that you need to get into and go back to and find other little spaces that you want to investigate and find out more about. So that is Belonging, The Story of the Jews, 1492 to 1900. It's by Simon Shamer. I'm sure you're going to be intrigued by this passionate accounting and the way the story unfolds over a 500-year period. Belonging, The Story of the Jews, 1492 to 1900, by Simon Shamer, published by Bodley Head. And uh, with that bugle call, that's it then. It was very good to be with you. And it's thank you to Rick Everett, to Babandi Lobi, to Patabataba Radebi, and from me, Gory Bose-Taylor, it's goodbye and good reading. Mm-hmm.